This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Welcome to you all to the International Edinburgh Book Festival um, and an even warmer welcome to our oh. author Ben Mesrick. My name is Decca Aikenhead, I write for The Guardian but I also chair the Grazia Magazine Monthly Book Club and I'm very happy to be thanking Grazia for sponsoring this event. <coughs> I'm even happier to be introducing to all of you who haven't yet seen it, Sex on the Moon by Ben. Uh, <coughs> as I was walking through the festival earlier it occurred to me that an awful lot of authors are probably really secretly dreading bumping into Ben. Because it has to be said that literary festivals can be seething with professional envy. And if any writer was going to make another writer feel envious, then I think it would probably be Ben. It has to be said, he's only 41 and this is his 12th book. Um, previous books, so, uh, the <coughs> excuse me, Bringing Down the House, sold over 2 million copies and became a film starring Kevin Spacey, um, uh, called 21. And all of you, I'm sure, will have heard of his book about the founders of Facebook called The Accidental Billionaires, which became The Social Network, uh, which won, I believe, three Oscars. Three. Three Oscars, Not the right. big one, sadly, but so, the rest of them. <laughs> so nothing much to envy there. <laughs> and uh, in addition to that, Ben is also credited with having actually devised a new literary genre. Um, the title of which I think I will leave to him when we get going to explain. Essentially what Ben does is he takes true stories and interviews the protagonists, but rather than treat the story then as journalism, he writes it more like a thriller and plays around a little bit with chronology and details and identities. And in some ways, some people have described it, and it's maybe not a bad description, it's a bit like a television docudrama in that it's a true story, but some kind of license has been taken. Critics have called it cheating, and we'll come on to that in a little bit. Uh, but before we talk about, I'm very much hoping that we can talk about, about the genre. Uh, but first of all, just a few brief things, stating the obvious. I hope everyone can remember to turn their phones off. If anyone wants to tweet, if they could leave that to the end, that would be great. Um, ben will talk for about half an hour, uh, and then we'll have 15 minutes for questions. And we have a roving mic, so if people can wait until they've got the mic in their hand before asking their question. Uh, and afterwards, Ben will be signing books in the signing tent, which is directly next door. Um, so without any further ado, Ben, welcome again. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I would like to ask, first of all, about the origin of the story, because Sex on the Moon is about a heist in which a young and very brilliant NASA intern decided, in order to impress his girlfriend, that he would steal literally pieces of moon, pieces of moon rocks that had been recovered during uh, moon landings. He then tried to sell them on the internet and unsurprisingly got caught and went to prison for a very long time, which uh, didn't impress his girlfriend very much at the time. <laughs> it was a story that I think took place about 10 years ago. Right. Could you tell us how you came sure. to be aware of it? Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for having me, and this is very cool for me. I've never done an international book festival before, and this is a great one to do, and uh, um, so be gentle. It's my first one. But, um, uh, you know, this story came to me, I've kind of become the go-to guy for every crazy college kid who commits a crime or does something <laughs> stupid. Um, and ever since first 21, and then of course since the social network, I get 20 or 30 emails or tweets or phone calls a week with just random stories that someone's- a week? A week, I mean crazy stuff. Um, and usually 90% of them are in prison and you know, you're not that interested <laughs> in that one. This was, uh, uh, Thad Roberts is the main character and uh, he had just gotten out of prison um, for stealing a 600 pound safe full of moon rocks. Um, and uh, spreading them on a bed and having sex with his girlfriend on the moon and then trying to sell them over the internet. Um, he had just gotten out of prison and his friends of his were fans of mine and they wanted him to tell me his story. So they reached out to me um, and uh, I got this message basically from people I didn't know saying, you gotta meet this kid. And I had uh, never met anybody who'd been in prison that long before. So I set up our meeting in a hotel lobby. I thought it would be a crowded place so he wouldn't kill me. And, uh, <laughs> I flew, it was in Utah, he was on probation in Utah, and I got there and he was the most charismatic, uh, nice guy, you know, very sweet. Um, he felt bad about, you know, how he'd ruined his life, um, but, you know, he wanted to tell his story. He felt like his whole life was going to be marked by this no matter what he did, so he may as well try and become famous. 
and I think that's the reason he wanted to talk to me. But, you know, he was a brilliant kid, very nice, was back getting his PhD, even though he had just been out of prison a little while, um, and had done something utterly stupid. So I got very involved in it, um, and in a lot of ways he was the most complex person I'd ever written about, because I normally write about geeky guys who can't get laid. And this was the first <laughs> geeky guy that I'd met who was getting laid. That wasn't his issue. It was that it wasn't enough for him. And, uh, and so that's you know, how I got into it. And so once you decided that he was your next project, how do you actually set about the process? If right. he's your main interviewee, how does it work? Well, I'm actually a, what I call a method writer, where I want to live the story. Um, you know, for the 21 bringing down the house, I joined the MIT Blackjack team. I was going to Vegas every weekend. I was, you know, carrying a quarter million dollars strapped to my body and getting chased around. And so with every book, I try and be a part of it as much as I can. So with this one, first of all, I spent a year hanging out with him, basically. Um, I had to get inside NASA, which was very hard. NASA wasn't thrilled that I was writing this book. They had kept it out of the press. Most people never heard this story before. It happened in 2002, and there was only one article written about it in the LA Times, and then it was just gone. Um, it was because NASA was embarrassed. They didn't want people to know what had happened. So they basically told everyone at NASA not to speak to me, which makes people want to talk to me. Um, but I literally just went to NASA, and I signed up on their website for what's called a Level 9 tour, which is an inside internal tour of where the astronauts hang out. And I fully expected them to see my name on the list and just cross it off, but nobody did anything. And you know, I gave them my social security number and whatever, and they just, you know, it's such a bureaucracy. So they gave me an ID and a security badge, no. and I was inside NASA. And then while I'm there, Tad Roberts was texting me and would be like, yeah, there's a door in the back of the room, go through that door. And uh, so I had the ultimate guided tour of NASA, and that, you know, took a while. And from there, it's just a process of getting the guy to trust you enough to tell you everything. And that took a while. And then I found uh, he had tried to sell the moon rocks to a Belgian mineral collector. And this guy had never been out of Antwerp. Um, that guy contacted me when he found that I was writing the book because the FBI had told him he'd stayed in touch with the FBI because he was like a hero. They named an asteroid after him as a <laughs> gift um, for taking down the moon rock heist. Um, so he emailed me out of the blue and was like, I hear you're writing this book. NASA said no one can talk to you, but I want to talk to you. So he started talking to me, and then other people started giving me stuff through him. Okay. Uh, then I filed an, a Freedom of Information Act with the FBI, which is you know, a legal document. It means they have to send you stuff. They can take as long as they want, um, but they have to send you their file. So it took about eight months, and then I got this literally 2,000-page box um, of the entire file on the, on the crime, which is an amazing amount of information. I mean, the FBI agents were wearing wires when they took the kid down, and uh, the first thing that he says when he walks into the restaurant is, if you're wearing a wire right now, I'm screwed. <laughs> so uh, I got all the transcripts from all of the wires. Um, I, got, I knew what was in his pockets when he was arrested. I mean, it was an incredible amount of detail. And when I got the file, I found out that there were things Thad was telling me that were not true. Um, I was gonna so I this, then, yeah. you know, gently had to basically say, listen, I know you're not telling me the truth here. And my books are controversial because of the style I use. So journalists will pick them apart. You have to tell me the truth. Um, it has to all be true. Um, so then he, he, you know, started to be more honest with me. Um, so Was he it's embarrassed? A, um, you know, he explained himself. He said, everyone's going to paint me as this criminal, so I want to paint myself more as a hero. <laughs> um, so that was his reasoning for lying. But um, he's not a bad guy. Uh, you know, some people hate him. I remember my dad finished the book and calls me up and is like, I hate this guy. Um, because my dad's a scientist. He'd been an engineer. And he's like, this guy stole stuff that people mm -hmm. risked their lives to get. Um, but once he met Thad, um, Thad came to Boston for our book party. He was like, you know, he's actually a nice guy. Um, he's just a, he did something stupid. Um, but more than stupid, this guy is one of the most intelligent people you can imagine. He has quite an interesting childhood in that he's brought up within the Mormon faith in Utah. Right. Uh, but he forms a relationship with a Mormon girl and they have premarital sex. And in a fit of bizarre candor, he confesses for no good reason, right. thinking everyone will forgive him. And instead, he's completely excommunicated by his family. Right. His family um, kicks him out. They make him live make in the basement marry, for two yes. months and then he has to leave home. He marries the girl at 18. He's completely cut off from his family. He has no money. He has nothing. And then he's in a, a career center at his university and he finds a file marked astronaut. And he's like, I want to be an astronaut. And he literally changes his whole life and becomes a triple major in physics, astronomy, and geology. He learns five languages. He thinks of astronauts as like James Bond. So he figures, I've got to become James Bond. 
He can fly airplanes. He scuba dives. He goes on paleontology digs. Um, everything he thinks of that you might need on the moon. And then he gets into NASA. <laughs> he, he literally applies um, to this incredibly prestigious internship becomes an intern there, and he's like a star there. I mean, he's really one of the people that they all talk about as being a potential astronaut. And then he meets this young 20-year-old intern um, who he falls in love with. His marriage at home is crumbling. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to impress her. I'm going to steal moon rocks. And uh, that's where everything kind of goes off the rails. I mean, we all know people do mad things for love. Yeah. <laughs> But you must have, in the time that you spent with him, you must have been thinking, why would somebody so clever, so unusual, so ambitious, risk everything? You know, and he risked more than he knew, but he knew he was risking his career. Right. I don't think he'd factored in the 10 years in jail. Right. Well, he thought it would why be like would a college prank. He thought NASA would be mad, but they wouldn't necessarily throw the book at him like that. Um, you know, he's one of these people who needs attention. He needs love. He needs everyone to think of him as this movie star. Um, you know, the James Bond theme was going through his head as he committed the crime. Um, he's, he wanted to be larger than life, but there was never a good reason. You know, I spent a year trying to get his motivation reason, yes. and uh, love, but he only knew the girl for three weeks. So, I mean, <laughs> and he had already been thinking about the heist and even planning it before he met her. She became the catalyst, he says. Um, without her, he probably wouldn't have done it. Mm -hmm. But he was already thinking about it. And it wasn't really about money, because even though moon rocks, they're worth $5 million a gram. They're the most valuable thing on Earth. But it's the street value of a moon rock, even though you can't legally own them um, in the US. They're illegal to own. They're given by the president as gifts to other prime ministers and presidents. Um, but he only tried to sell it for $100,000. So it wasn't like he was trying to make this huge score. Um, and he didn't even think through that part. He literally put an ad on the internet saying, does anyone want to buy a moon rock? Um, so you can't even say it was really about money. It's hard to know what so it was about. It wasn't about. really money, and it wasn't In really a lot money. of ways, it was about he had this horrible childhood. He didn't really believe he could become an astronaut, even though he was on that path. Yeah. And he wanted to do something special um, and, and prove himself. And uh, you know, his morals were not there. He, he did not have that moral you know, line where you say, this is right and this is wrong. For him, it wasn't wrong, because he figured NASA's not using these rocks anymore. <laughs> Um, they're in a safe. They've already been experimented on. They're NASA's trash. It, I'm going to take them, and who cares? You know, they it's won't recycling. Care. Exactly. And he had already stolen some stuff from a museum earlier yes. in his life. He had been working in an inventory uh, capacity in the museum <laughs> at Utah and had found these fossils that no one was using, so he just put them in his pocket and left, and he would display them in his house at dinner parties. Um, so he'd already you know, broken down you know, that one wall and just decided to do it again. And it's interesting because your dad didn't like him. I mean, no. I wasn't sure about him, I have to say. Right. Um, <clears throat> Although I will say, he came to Boston and women loved him. He's got that whole bad boy appeal. Even though he just spent seven and a half years in prison, I was actually shocked. But really? every girl at the party was asking about him. He's very good looking. Oh, okay. um, and he's very kind of rugged and outdoorsy and very smart. Um, but he spent a lot of time in jail, so I was amazed that people really were into him, but they were. <laughs> so he's got that charisma. Okay. He definitely has. Tell yeah. me this, uh, I interview people for The Guardian quite often, and even if you just spend an hour with an interviewee, when you're going away and you're writing up the interview after, sometimes you can kind of feel, you, you can't help but picture them reading your account of what they're like. <laughs> and it can be a little bit inhibiting. Right. And that's just after an hour. And if you spent a year with the guy, I'm curious about whether you felt quite whether you cared about what he thought of your version of him. Yeah, I was nervous about it. Yeah. Um, you know, the first thing that happened was he saw the title and didn't like the title. Uh. He was like, sex on the moon, everyone's going to think I'm this sex guy or whatever. Me, do you think he really did have sex? With oh, you know, that's the point. A lot of people ask me that. Yeah. I got it from multiple sources. So okay. he told me the whole story. There's a, a druggy guy in the book named Gordon. Um, this is like a <laughs> pot-smoking guy who, who Thad meets at the university and basically goes up to him and says, you smoke pot, you must know criminals. Uh, <laughs> literally, that's really his thought process. Um, so if I had a moon rock, would you be able to sell it? And this guy Gordon is like, you know we never went to the moon, right? Because he doesn't even think that that even happened. <laughs> and uh, it's bizarre. So he didn't realize his friend was working at NASA. Um, and he's like, yeah, I could do it. And he becomes part of the conspiracy. So he was actually had walked into the room just after they had had sex. And granted, he was very stoned, um, <laughs> but he also said they, they, had, they said they had just had sex. Oh, the man. FBI file has a whole page on it 
um, where I, they had told the FBI agents that they had had sex. So unless they were both <laughs> lying about it, which I'm not sure they would because it makes it look worse. Because yeah. now they're returning moon rocks that have been used, right? <laughs> uh, you know, so um, contaminated moon rocks, I guess. Um, they both said so, him and the girl. So, I mean, as a journalist, what more can you get? I mean, that's as far as you can get in that. And so tell us, what does he make of your account of him? Well, there's things in the book he did not like. He doesn't like that the Axel Emmerman guy, the Belgian guy, is a hero. He doesn't uh. like, he had never, he didn't know about all the FBI stuff going on in the background. And it makes him look pretty foolish. Because he's emailing back and forth with who he thinks is Axel, but it's actually an FBI agent. Yeah. Um, so he didn't realize he'd walk in. There's a great scene where he walks into this Italian restaurant in Orlando, Florida. Um, and he notices that everyone in the restaurant, it's a packed restaurant, is between the ages of 30 and 40. And it's because everyone in the restaurant's an FBI agent. <laughs> but it doesn't dawn on him uh, until after he's arrested. And so he was like, this makes me look really stupid. I'm like, well, I mean, yeah. you know, it's fair. But it is actually a difficult thing. And I will say, I've had this problem before. Um, when you write about people, you want to become their friend. But I mean, as a journalist, you know this. You, you're not really their friend. You're really not their friend <laughs> in a lot of ways, um, as Mark Zuckerberg can attest to me. Uh, you, you, you got to get inside the story. But when you tell the story, there's going to be a lot of things in there. And, and the thing is, they always want to be your friend, you know, and they want you to like them. And, and that kind of makes it worse, too, because then you don't know really what they're telling you is because you want, yeah. they want you to see them a certain way. So I always try and keep some level of a wall. And I do get accused a lot of, of falling in love with my main characters, of becoming a part of the story too much. Certainly with the MIT kids, I'm good friends with all those yeah. guys. I was part of the team. Yeah. Uh, with Facebook, Eduardo and I were very close until uh, he sent a restraining order to me. <laughs> so we were, we had a very close relationship while I was writing that book. Okay. Um, but he did it for the right reasons. He did it because uh, Mark Zuckerberg offered him 5% of Facebook to never speak to me again. Um, that's the number that I've heard. Um, I don't know if it's true it or not. What, roughly oh, right now, $5 billion. So I would happily never speak to me again for $5 billion. Um, and, uh, uh, <laughs> although he should send me a gift basket, you would think, right? right? But, um, you know, and, uh, and, and so over the years, I do become friends. Uh, this guy, I mean, Thad, I do like Thad, and I have hung out with him. Um, but, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with him. He's one of those characters where he could literally end back, end back in jail tomorrow, you know. Um, Do you think there's something slightly wrong with him? Yes. Um, yeah. Not slightly. <laughs> I think there's something very wrong. I think he's brilliant. Yeah. But I think he needs that affirmation so badly. You know, my yeah. mom read the book and she said he needs a hug from his mother. I mean, Aww. that's because, you know, there's the scene where he's, he's thrown to the, he's forced to live in the basement. He can't have any contact with his family. His dad tells him, he thinks his dad's gonna kill him. He's waiting outside for his dad to get the shotgun to kill him. Instead, his dad sends him to the basement and then his mom comes down the stairs and he thinks she's going to you know, say something nice or whatever and she says, when you go to hell, are you gonna blame me for how you turned out? And that's like his last conversation with his mother. So you can kind of, yeah. it doesn't forgive uh, the crime, but you can kind of understand why he needs people to like him. Um, but at the same time, then I'm a little scared of him too, because I know that he's got that edge to him. I mean, who knows what's going to happen next with him. And uh, it's the first crime book I've ever written. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the Vegas kids, it wasn't illegal what they were doing, even though the casinos frown upon it. And Mark Zuckerberg didn't commit a crime, although a lot of people think he did, but he really didn't. Um, but, uh, but this guy did. I mean, he did spend a lot of time in jail. So for me, I wanted to keep walls as okay. much as possible. I'm interested that you say that people um, say that you tend to fall in love with your main protagonist. Because there's certainly a theme of kind I of will say that also I, I got a comment after the Facebook thing come out that I had a, a homoerotic homoerotic uh, 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 interest in the Winklevi <laughs> in, in one chapter well, in the book. There was one article. And I do think they're very good looking, but that wasn't <laughs> what it was. It was just the way I was describing them almost too much as uh, As the uh, beauty. Right, right. <laughs> but I think my wife kept saying, you know, they're really good looking, and I kept putting that in the book. So it wasn't my fault. Well, there's definitely a theme, Ben, that you tend to write about, you know, very brilliant students who are slightly outsidery, Mark Zuckerberg being the obvious example, very brilliant, but don't feel socially included. Um, in fact, I think you say Mark Zuckerberg and his friends were geeky, brilliant kids who had their faces pressed up against the glass. On the other side was the social scene they weren't really a part of, and they created their own club. <coughs> Do you think... You yourself went to Harvard, yes. and you've always described yourself as a geek, a yes. bit of a geek. Is there quite a bit of you in your main yes. character? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of me uh, in there. In the, you know, I was a very geeky, nerdy kid. I wasn't smart enough to create Facebook. Writing was my 
you know, way to become a rock star, I guess. You know, I think every geeky kid wants to be that rock star, and he wants to find a way to have people like him and talk to them. And, and what Mark and, and Eduardo did was created a whole system where we could all meet each other online. You know, Mark's best friend is his computer. Now he can use his computer to meet anybody he wants. Um, and I think that that's a theme in all of my books. It's always about the underdog, the kind of geeky, nerdy guy who, who does something great. And he really does it because he can't get girls. And, uh, and I do kind of understand that. I mean, Is that I, why you started writing? Oh, of course. I mean, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't play the guitar and, uh, you know, uh, I couldn't really play sports. Okay. I've never caught uh, or hit a ball thrown in my general direction in my entire life. Um, so, you know, in high school, that's a big problem. Um, and, uh, and, you know, yeah, I think that's a driving force for a lot of people in college. I mean, there's obviously more to it than that. It's not all about girls. It's about there's a social scene that you can't really be a part of. And though you have a lot of friends, you still look at the finals clubs, for example, at Harvard. And the finals clubs are something that is very unusual in the US. And I don't know if it's as unusual here. But there's really no aristocracy in the United States, except for at Harvard, there are these finals clubs that are passed down. Students get in because their parents were in it or because they went to a certain prep school. And that is the social center of the school. And I went to a lot of the parties, but I couldn't go upstairs. You know, The finals club members can go upstairs, and you have to stay downstairs. And it's, it's, a, it's an unusual thing in the US to have something like that. Yeah. So I thought it was a very cool setting, because that's where Mark went. And I, Eduardo really wanted to be and then did get into the Phoenix. And, and the Winklevi were members of the Porcillion. And I felt that was a very strong theme. Mark disagrees and feels that I never wanted to be in the Phoenix, although yeah. I have letters proof that he did want to be in the Phoenix. But, um, but you know, it's, it's just one of those themes I think uh, I've always kind of written about, and I'm sure I put my, um, myself into it. And Thad Roberts is very, you know, he was an athletic guy. He was an outdoorsy guy, but he felt like an outsider. He felt yeah. like, I have no money. I have no family. I'm married at 18. I'm not normal, and I'm around all these college kids who are having a great time. Mm -hmm. And he, make, he made himself into the social center of the school, but of, of, of NASA, basically, but still couldn't feel like he was involved. Um, so yeah, that's a theme in all my books, yeah. And if you, I mean, there's the, there's the line that you fall in love with your protagonist. Mark Zuckerberg certainly didn't fall in love with you. No, yeah. He called me the Jackie Collins of Silicon Valley. I think that was what he called <laughs> Did me. Did you ever think, as I understand it, he never cooperated with you? Well, him. here's what happened. So this is actually a crazy story. So I'm sitting at home, and I get an email at 2 in the morning. And uh, so the movie 21 was about to come out. Um, it was, was it called 21 here, 21, too? Yeah. So, um, it was like a couple weeks before the movie comes out, and I get an email from a Harvard senior, and he says, my best friend co-founded Facebook, and no one's ever heard of him. And I thought that was a strange email to get. I'd heard of Mark Zuckerberg. I didn't know there was any story behind how it was founded. Knew nothing about it. I knew it was at the time worth $25 billion. Um, and I thought, this is cool. I'll go out for a drink with this guy. So I go out for a drink, and in walks Eduardo Severin. And Eduardo walks up, and he is angry. He's like, Mark Zuckerberg screwed me out of Facebook. He proceeds to get very drunk, and he starts to tell me this whole crazy story about him and Mark were best friends, meeting in an underground Jewish fraternity, couldn't get girls, couldn't get into finals clubs. <laughs> you know, Mark does this weird, you know, after a really bad date, hacks into all the computers, pictures of all the girls, makes a web fight, you know, where you can vote on who the hottest girl at Harvard is, doesn't realize that that pisses everybody off. Um, and then, you know, Facebook happens. And I'm like, this is amazing. So I'm like, I want to write this story. But Eduardo says, you know, I'm, I'm, this is secret. No one can know I'm talking to you. I'm in the midst of a legal battle with Mark, and they want to settle with me, and I, I want to tell you my story, but once I settle, I can't talk to you, so no one can know I'm talking to you. So I go home, and I start working on the project, and for about six months, I'm hanging out with Eduardo, and I write a book proposal, and it's a 14-page book proposal. And I send it off to my agent. There's a bunch of publishers bidding on it, and the next day, I get a million phone calls, and they go look at the internet, and it had splashed up on a website my entire book proposal. I'd never seen a book proposal put on the web before. I didn't know people would be interested, but they were. And everything exploded at once. Eduardo freaks out and sends me a legal restraining order because he's not supposed to be talking to anybody. And the, the lawyers figure, now people will think he never talked to you because he sent you a restraining order. Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook settles with Eduardo and makes him sign an agreement. I've heard it's 5% of Facebook. Nobody really knows the real number. So but by that's this point, he'd already told you everything. Right. That's what Mark didn't know. Um, at the same time, it was, an it was crazy. Facebook freaks out. I had been trying to get Mark to do an interview with me. Um, I get a call from them, and they're like, Mark's not going to talk to you. And they were actually very nice about it, but they're, it went back and forth for a long time. The Winklevi twins reached out to me, so I met the, the big twins. Um, Sean Parker, I met. Everybody kind of wanted to talk to me because everyone knew I was writing this big book. Um, and Aaron Sorkin read the screen, the, the proposal on the web, 
called up Scott Rudin and Kevin Spacey, who were already producing the project, ah. and said, I want this to be my next project. And as an author, that's the ultimate. I mean, getting a call like that. Aaron Sorkin wants to write it. I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds great. Although I haven't written the book yet. <laughs> I've written a book proposal. Um, and then David Fincher signed on, said, I want this to be my next movie, too. And I literally then go, okay, I got to write this book now. So I start writing the book really fast. Um, Aaron Sorkin comes out to Boston, and we sit in a hotel room, and I'm handing him chapter by chapter, and then he writes this amazing screenplay, and everything kind of exploded. Facebook, they kept kind of stringing me along, saying, maybe we'll talk to you, maybe we'll talk to you, and in the end, they just said no. Um, and that had been a year-long process, and I understand, this was not the story Mark ever wanted to tell. If he had told the origins of Facebook's story, there would be no mention of Eduardo, there would be no mention of the Winklevoss <laughs> twins. Um, there would be a bare mention of Sean Parker, and that would be it. And that would not be true. Um, on the other hand, he knew I was talking to Eduardo and the Winklevi and Sean, and I was getting all these other points of view that he felt were not representative. So, you know, there's a truth there, and I feel very strongly that the social network is very accurate. Um, I think it's a very true story. Facebook says it's not Just true, film, it's not I true. Mean, are you happy with the way the film Oh, the film, right? I mean, how could you not be happy? It's amazing. I mean, they did <laughs> such a good job with it, and Aaron's dialogue is amazing and a lot of my lines got into the movie um, and uh, and you know it all ended up being a great project and the music I mean Trent Reznor you can't ask for better music than that and Fincher's a genius and Justin Timberlake was perfect I thought yeah. Jesse Eisenberg is amazing everything was just great um, and I thought it was very true I feel like you know Facebook says it's not true but they never say what's not true there's never any oh this isn't this didn't happen it's okay. the whole thing's not true um, so you know uh, the reality is what I do is very close to the truth. Um, it's written in a style that's very cinematic and it gives journalists uh, the ability to say it's bullshit. But the reality is, um, I feel it's as accurate as any nonfiction fiction that's out there. As accurate as any nonfiction. I do. I mean, pick up the book on Cleopatra, right? There are no sources that are living <laughs> that know anything about Cleopatra. Uh, and yet you can build a whole book and no one says, but you never talked to Cleopatra. Right? I write a book about uh, Zuckerberg, and they say, but you never talked to Mark Zuckerberg. Well, yeah, but there's 2,000 okay. pages of court documents. There's yeah. interviews with everyone who's been around him his whole life. There's, uh, you know, you can, you can put together so much information on a person like that without ever meeting them. And it's no different than writing a biography of Abraham Lincoln. But tell me, why do you think that this is so popular as a genre that you're pursuing at the moment? Because at the moment, Journalism, um, <clears throat> journalism has a lot of scrutiny about its practices, as right. we all know, and more significantly, memoirists. You know, there have been famous cases like James Frey, mm -hmm. who have written memoirs. People have then questioned the the, uh, the veracity of details, and those memoirists have really been disgraced. You know, they've not just been right. um, discredited. They've well, been when, disgraced. when Oprah turns on you, you're, you're in, in trouble. trouble. <laughs> right. Right. So, why is it? Do you think that this genre? is proving so successful at the very same time when traditional nonfiction it seems to be running into trouble. Well, I mean, I think, first of all, personally, I've never been that big a fan of nonfiction. I find it, uh, most of it is boring. Um, there's a few writers who I think are phenomenal. You know, Michael Lewis, uh, Sebastian Younger. There's a number of nonfiction writers that I love. But overall, I think some of the genre is difficult to read. And, and I think what I do, it's a form of entertainment. The stories happen to be true. That's the way I've always looked at it. I mean, I've started off as a fiction writer. I was writing thrillers. I was writing crappy sci-fi. I wrote for the X-Files. I had a really bad TV movie called Fatal Error in the US. Please never see it. It still airs on the sci-fi channel. And if you get that here at 2 in the morning, and it's a, a story about uh, a surgeon who uh, uncovers this conspiracy where people are getting sick from their televisions because uh, a computer virus makes a jump to the biological world. and. Uh, it stars Antonio Sabato Jr. I don't know if you guys know, he's an underwear model, and he plays the surgeon. I guess surgeons do a lot of sit-ups in their free time. Classy. Yeah, and uh, there's a great scene. I was watching with my dad, who's a doctor, and there's a scene where Antonio Sabato Jr. is leaning over the patient's chest, and he goes, we've got a subdural hematoma. And my dad's like, you know that's in the head, right? <laughs> so, so I was writing like trash fiction. Um, and then I ran into the blackjack team and started hanging out with them and said, this is better than the crap I'm writing. It just happens to be true. Mm -hmm. And so I came into nonfiction by accident and I decided to continue writing them like they're thrillers. Like, that's right. um, and you know, I think it's popular because they read like movies and people love movies. And now there's such a synergy between movies and books. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't really write a book to be a bestseller unless you think it can be a movie at this point. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of wonderful writers who are writing very different styles than this who are doing very well. Mm -hmm. But I just think that this catches um, people's attention um, because it's fun. And, and I think people want to have fun. I mean, the world is dark right now in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, so you want to read a story about a guy who has sex on moon rocks, I think. Uh, uh, and certainly that's what interests me. Um, you're not going to uh -huh. see me write a biography of Abraham Lincoln. 
um, unless he had sex on moon rocks, um, because it just sure. doesn't interest me. And so I sort of, you know, hope my audience likes that too. But even within the nonfiction, mm -hmm. even within the nonfiction world, you find, um, I mean, the, the classic kind of work would have been Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, right, right. you know, a beautifully reconstructed, totally factually accurate mm -hmm. account of a murder. Right. You Had he written that after James Fry, it would have been attacked as well. <laughs> um, um, that's interesting because you say that your work is true. Right. You know, you said the, the whole thing James about Fry thing changed that. everything. And every journalist ah. began to look for that because it would make them famous. I so see. the reality is, is that I get attacked a lot in the U.S. press, especially the New York Times, mm -hmm. you know, or whatever, because they want you to be James Fry. They want to say, look what I found. This book is not true. Uh -huh. um, I write in the opening of every book in my author's note exactly what I'm going to do. Yes. And so all of the reviews I think, of my I mean, book, I could almost read yeah. it. I think I've got a quote, mate. <laughs> people pretty much review my author's note. Yes, um, Because yes. that becomes a story. <laughs> and the reality is, listen, it's right there. There's nothing to find. There's no scandal. I'm telling you, I'm going to recreate some dialogue. I know what was said. I know the actors who were there. I talked to the people who were involved. And then I wrote the dialogue. I didn't just say they talked about Facebook. I wrote a scene in which two college kids are talking about Facebook. Yeah. Um, and a lot of journalists find that, you know, you can't do that. If this were a newspaper article, you wouldn't be able to do that. Sure. Um, but it's not a newspaper article. It's a narrative nonfiction, you know, thriller. And, uh, and so it becomes this whole thing yeah. because they want there to be a scandal. But it's not just journalists, in fairness. One of the MIT students who talked about bringing down yeah. the house that I don't know even if you want to call the things in their exaggerations because they're so exaggerated, they're basically untrue. Right. The person who wrote, well, this is funny too. Yeah. This is a, so this was a Boston Globe article. Uh -huh. um, the, the MIT blackjack team played for 25 years. There were different teams every three years. They would hand down these secrets of beating blackjack to the next group of students. So there were a lot of students who played blackjack over those years, maybe 100, 120. Mm -hmm. I wrote about a group of six students. There was another group of students who hated that group who decided to come out against the book. So what the Boston Globe article did was to try and create a scandal, Around interviewed people from the other team who I all see. said it's not true. The people from the team itself all said it was true. So the reality is that journalist who wrote that article was playing with the facts I as see. because he said these were the guys in the book. Does it bother you? It bothers me because you yeah. can't say anything. Because all you do if you say something is add steam to the fire and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So your publisher says you can't say anything. So, you know, they'll write an article where they say it's not true, I talked to this person. Yeah. And you'll say, well, that person doesn't know anything because that person wasn't there. Or, you know, Mark Zuckerberg says he never had, he, he had a girlfriend. Right? Well, the reality is, Mark did have a girlfriend who he met at the end of when the book takes place, okay. who he then dated for many years, seeing her once every couple of weeks. But that doesn't change any of the facts of the story. But you can't respond to that because it creates more interest of course, in is it true, is it not true. Yeah. So, you know, it does bother you a little bit, but the reality is, all of that controversy sells books. So the worst okay, thing would be yeah. is if no one wrote about it. So I'm, I'm always happy when someone writes a big article, is it true, is it not true? Because then people buy the book and try and decide for themselves, is it true, is it not true? So I'm happy, you know, keep on saying it, keep on coming after me. And listen, if Oprah wants me to come on, I'm happy to come on and she can uh, trash me all she wants and it'll be great. It's, but, um, um, I should read you the author's note because you're right, it does get reviewed. Yes. Um, you write, details or settings and descriptions have been changed to protect identities. Certain names, individuals, characterizations, physical descriptions and histories have been altered to protect privacy, in some cases at the character's own request. I do employ the technique of recreated dialogue. So, in other words, you do play around quite a lot. Well, and you know, I, I, it seems like I do from the author's note. The reality yeah. is, is all of the facts are correct. I mean, there's nothing in Sex on the Moon that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, you'll never find a scene in there and say, well, this didn't happen, this didn't happen. You know, it all did happen. The dialogue surrounding those scenes is recreated. Um, the names have been changed because they asked me to. The girl in the story did not want this coming out. She was very unhappy because she's changed her life. She's now a professor. She's moved on. Uh, she was asked in the courtroom why, you know, she committed the crime with him. She was his accomplice. And they asked her, why would you do this? You knew this guy for three weeks. And she's like, I'm still trying to figure this out. Um, and, you know, she dumps him while he's in prison. And, uh, and so she was very unhappy. She begged me not to write the book. And I said, I'm, you know, I'm writing the book. And she said, well, please change my name. So I changed okay. her name. And then I often get attacked by journalists saying, well, why'd you change her name? I'm like, well, she asked me to change her name. I'm, you know, I'm not trying to ruin anybody's life. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you can Google it. You'll find her name in two seconds if you want it. Um, but she's moved on with her life, so I do that. And, and the reality is, you know, that's, that's the reason I change names, is to protect okay. people. Do you feel any sense of, um, 
of moral dilemma if you have one key person, Eduardo for right. Next Down to Billionaires, Thad for Sex on the Moon, one key interviewee, and obviously it's corroborated by other evidence, as right. you say, FBI files. But the people who choose not to speak to you or the people who get omitted, right. their side of the story never gets expressed. Not as much. Yeah. Do you feel kind of guilty that effectively you Well, have you know, the goal for me is to be as, you know, not to, to make it seem coming from one character's point of yeah. view. But often, like in a book like this or in the Eduardo story, I mean, Eduardo's point of view is much stronger in that book uh, because, you know, I, mm -hmm. I knew Eduardo well and Mark wouldn't talk to me. On the other hand, you have to build Mark's point of view into it, so I do my best and I try and do it as well. I wish everybody would talk to me and that would be great. Um, I, try, I try to sort of stay uh, on the fence as much as possible. I don't think you're going to read that book, you know, for instance, Axel and Billionaires and say the Winklevi are the hero of the story. No. Um, you know, so I, I think you yeah. do have to pick and choose what you're going to say. But yeah, I'm not out to get anybody. I'm not trying to hack anybody down. I, I really, I'm a fan of all these people that I write about. I, I want to make, you know, them larger than life because I think, you know, the stories are really cool. Um, so so I think I, I err in that direction rather than erring in the direction where I make someone look bad. But, right. you know, you have to try and resist it. But, you know, I am a fan. I think it's cool. You know, I think some things are really interesting and I, I get a little excited about it. And that's, you know, when the stories, you know, seem very um, thriller-esque, uh -huh. I think, to me. Um, so, yeah, there is a little bit of that. But, you know, um, I you, think as long as you lay it out there what you're doing. And, I mean, it, you can read the book and in the author's note in this one, I thank that and I say and a lot of it is from his point of view. Mm -hmm. And I try and make it clear for once he's talking about his parents, when he's talking about, you know, these are things that he said. Um, and there is corroborating evidence to it. But really, it's a scene from his point of view with his parents, yeah. and that's how he felt it happened. Did you ever speak to his parents? No, they wouldn't. They're, they're in a, uh, an enclave. Uh, they would not talk to me. Um, they're not, you know, they, they didn't want to have any relationship with him again. Um, so he basically went off to prison, and they, all they needed to do was sign a piece of paper, and he would have been out. It was a no-cash bail mm -hmm. for the first year, and nobody would sign that piece of paper. So they basically cut him off and everybody off. He did email me and say that his younger brother reached out to him after the book came out and apologized to him uh, for not standing up to the parents. Um, so he was happy about that. So I felt good about that. Yeah. At least that gave him, and now he has a relationship with his younger brother again. Um, but no, I wasn't able to speak so to them. <laughs> I'm sure they don't like it. I don't know if they've read it or not. Um, but, um, you know, they'll probably feel that sure. this isn't, you know, accurate. Um, they'll say that as well. But, you know, this is what he yeah. thought happened. So, yeah. yeah. I think we've got time now to open it up to questions. There's somebody with a mic at the front. Here she is, this lady. Gentlemen there at the front, first up there. Hi, right, first of all, thanks for the talk. Um, I have a couple of questions. First of all, I wonder if you think uh, you were concerned about glamorizing Thad Johnson, right. particularly with some of the things he did, particularly with the, the notes of his, uh, his professor. Yeah. professor. Right. Because uh, I think that, that's, that's put a big downer on him in the book. Right. And secondly, I mean, what did you think when you read the New York Times Review? <laughs> Janet Maslin, right? <laughs> it's wow. a piece. Yeah, well, first of all, Thad <laughs> Roberts, is, is um, he, in the safe, the he stole a safe from his professor's office. His professor was an Apollo scientist, had worked on the moon rocks for 30 years. The professor said within the safe were these green notebooks that contained his life's work. They were not returned when the safe was found. He says Thad destroyed them. That's the reason Thad went to jail for seven and a half years. The judge said, you destroyed this man's work. Thad says there were no notebooks. Um, there were no notebooks found. Uh, the FBI never found any notebooks. Dad claims he didn't destroy them. Um, I interviewed him over a year. I asked him many, many times, because if he destroyed the notebooks, that's an incredibly deliberately uh, malicious thing to do, and it, it changes who he is dramatically. Um, he maintained throughout that there were no notebooks. He never saw any notebooks. Maybe they got lost in the shuffle. Um, I don't think that putting that in there, and I was very clear in there that you know I didn't know what happened with the notebooks. I put the judge's speech in there. I put Everett Gibson, the professor's entire speech on, on the stand in there, saying that his life work was destroyed. Um, so I don't feel that it glamorizes it. And Thad spent seven and a half years in prison. So it's not like you read the book and say, oh, I'm going to do, do this. This sounds great. It doesn't sound great. I mean, you know, they called him Moon Rock in jail. Uh, he, he had a miserable time there. Um, so I think it doesn't glamorize the crime at all. Um, it certainly is an exciting crime. I think there's an exciting uh, aspect to it, and I think it'll make a great movie. But I don't think it necessarily glamorizes the crime. And I, you know, I don't know whether there were notebooks or not. Um, I don't know who to believe. There's no reason why the Apollo scientists would lie about it. On the other hand, there was nothing found, and I don't see why Thad would destroy them. Just 
having interviewed him for so long, I don't think he's a malicious person, but I could be wrong. Um, and I try to be objective about that. But it's a good question, and I guess when people read it, they have to decide for themselves. You know, but most people read the book, and a lot of people are saying, I don't like that. So obviously, I'm not glamorizing him that much <laughs> if people are coming out of it hating this guy. Um, you know, I, I make it very clear that he's delusional, um, that he has these fantasies that he thinks are real, that he wants to be James Bond. I'm very clear about that, so I don't think you're going to come out of it and saying he's this superhero um, until Justin Timberlake plays him in the movie, and then you might. Now, uh, in terms of the New York Times article, so Janet Maslin, uh, she reviewed Accident of Billionaires as well and destroyed it and went on and on about how I make things up. And I, I forget what she said, but it was hysterically written. And then with this one, she had a field day. Um, she went nuts. She doesn't actually <laughs> review the book at all. If you read the review, it's entirely a review of the author's note and my methods. Um, I think she calls me a, God, what did she call me? Something like a um, something artist. Uh, something like a, it's some sort of BS artist. I don't know what, what she called me, but it was a, she just does not like what I do. Um, which, listen, I understand it. She's a old world kind of journalist who believes in a, a form of journalism that I don't write. Um, she doesn't like this narrative nonfiction format. She doesn't like taking a true story and selling it to the masses. She doesn't like that people read my books. Um, she would rather they didn't. And, I, and that's her point of view. It kind of cracks me up. I mean, you, the thing is, they have to give me two pages in the New York Times, which I love. So they give me a huge review, but they're going to trash me. So the question is, would you rather not be trashed in the New York Times or be trashed in the New York Times? And as an author, I'd rather be trashed in the New York Times than not get a full you know, review. Um, I'd rather they notice me than love me. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been an interesting thing in my career that she'll give me a big review like that, and then I'll be on the bestseller list right afterwards. Um, so my audience kind of understands what I'm doing, and a lot of people just don't agree with her. Um, they think, why not make nonfiction fun? Um, you know, if she had a problem with the facts in the book, she could have pointed out facts that weren't true. But she doesn't, because there aren't any facts that aren't true in the book. There's nothing not true in the story. If she had something to say, she would have said it. Um, instead, she just attacks my style and, uh, you know, a lot of the sort of graphic language and the sex on the bed. She didn't like that Thad believed he was having sex on the moon. She's like, he put moon rocks on a mattress and had sex on them. Is that the same as having sex on the moon? Well, of course it's not. But in Thad's head, that's what he was trying to do. Um, so she just wasn't willing to be creative. Um, <laughs> I get that. It's, you know, there's a number of reviewers who will do that, who will always, the Boston Globe, my hometown paper, will always attack me. Uh, but then at the same time, they'll give me a huge write-up with photos and everything like that. So it's like, okay, go ahead and trash me. You know, <laughs> I'm, uh, as, I have a thick skin. Um, I come from a lot of books. This is not my first go around. And I feel like, you know what, it's, there's going to be people who like it and going to be people who don't. And um, the people who don't just happen to work for the New York Times. <laughs> so, that's the way. The Guardian likes me, right? I usually, Absolutely. you know, I've gotten some very positive reviews. Uh, I will say I've gotten much more negative reviews in the US than outside of the US. Um, outside, do do people don't seem to have a problem with, with this form of nonfiction here as much as they do there. And I don't know why that is, but um, it doesn't seem to, people don't seem to care that much. I mean, they're like, well, you know, why, what's the big fuss about? You know, uh, you're saying what you're going to do and you do it. Um, and I think it's, it's that search for James Fry. I just think it's much more of a media sensation um, there. I don't know that it was as big here, but no, um, I mean, he was a superstar after that there. I mean, his book sold three million copies the week after he was trashed <laughs> or, or something like that. So, I mean, it, it became a phenomenon in itself. Um, so, I don't know. Yeah. Another question? Lady here. Sure. Hi. Um, you, you mentioned before that that is the first book you actually go into like the crime story where somebody actually did something wrong. Yeah. Did you, um, like all the other books basically, it's a gray kind of area for everybody. Did you ever had a point where you thought, well, should I actually do that? Should I cross that line? And yeah, there. I, I definitely, that's a good question. And, you know, I usually write about guys who live in that gray area between right and wrong, and that Roberts is a guy who just ran right through the gray area and <laughs> committed a major crime. Um, and I did, when I sat down to the story, and I, and I thought the story, I'd always wanted to write about NASA. I think NASA is very cool. I grew up loving space, and uh, when you picture NASA, you picture the 60s, 
and you picture Tom Hanks in a little capsule, and that's not what NASA's like today. So I wanted to write a NASA story that took place today, and this was perfect. Um, but I was a little nervous because I'm, I'm not a crime writer. I've never written it before. Um, I don't want to get involved in these underworlds, and, and I don't want everybody who commits a crime to come call me and say, I want you to write my story, although they do now. Um, <laughs> you know, the WikiLeaks people call me. I don't know. I don't know about that story. I, I just don't, I don't know what's right. I don't want to get into that. I want to stay with what I write about, but I was too excited about this story not to write it. Um, but I did think about it, and I didn't want to, you know, be seen as, you know, as making a criminal look great. Um, he's not profiting from the book. I mean, he's not involved financially in any way. And, 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 and I, I figured I could, in this one story, because he was, you know, after talking to him, not a bad guy. Um, he just, to me, did not seem like an evil criminal. He seemed like a stupid college kid who did something dumb. Um, we've all done dumb things. He just took it one step farther. He pulled a prank, and it was a big prank. And it ended up hurting somebody, and it ended up shutting down a government organization, and he ended up going to jail for seven and a half years. Um, but I looked at it that way. Um, so yeah, it, it, I, I'm not looking to write more crime stories. Um, a lot of people are pitching me a lot of that stuff now, and it's just not, you know, I, I want to stay, you know, a little bit in that gray area rather than go into the crime stuff. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there is a big audience for it. People do like these stories, and, and I do like reading them sometimes, so, you know, I did enjoy it. Um, dealing with the FBI, things like that, it's not my cup of tea. It's, it's, people are so serious, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's a little scary. But then again, you know, I guess I took on Facebook. What's scarier than Facebook, right? Um, so uh, it, was, it, was a different, it was a different situation. Um, but um, it, yeah, I don't know that I'll do another crime story. But thank you. It's a good question. Thank you. That was a good question. Gentleman at the back in a pink shirt there. Firstly, thanks for a very entertaining and, and informative talk. Um, if we get all these kind of crackpot emails every month, can you share with us maybe some of the books you've chosen not to write? <laughs> <laughs> and, and does it also mean you've now got a lifetime of books to, uh, to look forward to writing anything that you've got you know, to look forward to in the future? Yeah. And, and finally, do you have a Facebook account? I do. I'm on Facebook. I, w I was expecting to get kicked off of Facebook as soon as that movie came out. But uh, it was actually funny. So I went to my college reunion, and the COO of Facebook was in my class at Harvard. And everyone was waiting for us to run into each other. I didn't know her personally. And she came up to me, and she's like, I, want, I need to talk to you. And she said, I was enemy number one at Facebook for a year. And Mark you know, was so upset and everything like that. But she said they saw the movie. And afterwards, they actually started to see it as a good thing and not a bad thing. And they, she still maintained, it's not true, it's not true. But it wasn't bad for Facebook. It made Mark very cool. A lot of college kids were writing essays about how they wanted to be like Mark Zuckerberg and how they wanted to create you know, a sensation like he had created. So it ended up being a positive thing. But they definitely didn't like me for a while, and I was on Facebook. <laughs> so uh, yeah, they, there was a fan page for the book. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's, it's pretty funny. Um, yeah, I get a lot of crazy stories. I mean, everything you could possibly imagine. I've, I've had some weird ones. I've had. Uh, um, Oh, let me think of a good one. There was, you know, the ones that I don't write, for instance, I was getting a phone call every night at 2 in the morning. And I have a, a phone that's connected that's on, that you can find the number to, but I don't actually ever check it until I check the messages once a week. And this guy was calling me every night at 2 in the morning, and he was leaving this message uh, in an English accent. He said, I've got a great story for you, Mr. Mesrick. Please call me back. And the next day, I've got a great story. Please do call me back. And after about a week, he's like, uh, I can see you're not going to call me back. Tomorrow morning, in your mailbox, there will be a cashier's check for $50,000. That's yours. Call me back. And I'm like, this has got to be a joke, right? <laughs> so the next day, I go downstairs, and there's literally a cashier's check for $50,000. So that's cash. Um, what? It's, it's, it's actual cash. It's legal tender. You can just go cash it for $50,000. So I'm like, all right, got to call this guy back. So <laughs> I, call, I call this guy, and he gets on the phone. He's in Hong Kong. He's a trader from London. He's a, 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 in a hedge fund. And he's worth many hundreds of millions of dollars. And he starts telling me the story how he had worked as a trader, had gotten involved in drugs, had begun selling cocaine, and then gone to jail for three years. And I was like, okay, it's kind of interesting. And then he goes, and that's when I discovered that I'm the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and at that moment, you're just looking at this $50,000 check going, oh, I can't catch So I like, was like, you know what? I can't write this story. I, I, I gave him the number of a few other writers who might want to write a story. Um, I was getting calls uh, from... Uh, 
in Boston, there's a museum called the Gardner Museum, and there was a huge art heist there. It was, I think, the largest art heist in the world, many hundreds of millions of dollars worth of art. And they've been gone for 20 years or something like that. And I got a call from a guy who said he was on probation for a very similar crime, like almost the exact same theft. And he started to give me details that I, I couldn't imagine how he had gotten these details. And he's like, I know where all the art is. I did it. He said that they had stolen it for a billionaire who had then died, so they had nowhere to put the paintings. So they were in a warehouse in South Boston. And I was like, well, this is sounding really intriguing. And then he's like, I'm going to break my parole, meet me, and he gives me an address in an alley in South Boston. And I was like, I can't go that length. I'm not going to go that next step. So that was a story I didn't follow. But who knows? He might have been, uh, you know, I don't want to do anything dangerous. I, I'm actually scared of most everything, which is funny because I write stories that are very exciting, and, and, but I'm very neurotic, terrified um, person. So I try and write about places I want to go, you know, like Vegas or Japan or whatever. I try not to write about war zones or anything scary. Um, but yeah, I've gotten a lot of, you know, I've gotten the Charlie Sheen people called me uh, when that all broke down. That would have been interesting. <laughs> but, you know, I got, uh, in, I don't know you if you, uh, you know, I was intrigued for a while, but he kind of went off the rails. Like, I didn't know w whether that would really happen. It sounded like it would just be an, en uh, you know, an endless kind of quest. Um, Elliot Spitzer, do you guys know that mm. whole case? The madam called me, uh, who ran all the prostitutes. Elliot Spitzer was the governor of New York cool. until he was caught um, using a very, very high-class uh, prostitute. Prostitute. Service. Well, the madam wanted to tell her story through me, um, but my wife didn't really want me to go hang out with the madam for a year. <laughs> Similarly, there was a story a guy called me and said he had found the largest brothel in the world, <laughs> and it was a Sheraton Hotel in mainland China where every room has a different girl, and it's run by Sheraton. And I was like, well, that's a pretty cool story. And again, my wife nixed that one. She was like, we're not going to go spend a month in Sheraton Hotel. Um, so yeah, I get them. I get them all the time. I mean, some of them are really big stories. Some of them are you know, small stories. Um, a lot of them are really interesting. There's a recent one where uh, these kids were fixing scratch tickets. They were making a fortune on scratch tickets because they had found a flaw in uh, where, they were, where they were winning. And then they were able to map the winners of scratch tickets. I got that one in Boston. I got horse race guys who had two college kids who had gone to jail for fixing horse racing. That was a cool one that I almost wrote. Um, so there's been a lot of good ones. But you know, NASA, a guy having sex on moon rocks, that wins. You know, uh, the Facebook story, that one won. Um, so yeah, I'm always looking for that, you know, the and next one. Can you tell one. us what the next one is? Well, I don't have, I mean, I kind of have another book, but yeah, I don't I really know for sure. I'm actually going to be doing a television show um, where I go inside different stories every couple of weeks. And, 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 and um, you know, because so many are pitched to me now. So that's kind of a documentary series I'm working on. And we're working on the movie for this one. I sold it to the same people who did The Social Network. So it's the same producers. It's Kevin Spacey again. And uh, uh, the director is the guy who just did uh, Friends with Benefits with Justin Timberlake. And he did Easy A. And he's writing and directing it. So um, that's probably the next project. But I don't, I don't have, I mean, I have an idea, but I haven't really started the next book yet. You're not going to tell us. That. I'm not going to tell you, no. <laughs> but eventually I'll tell you. But I think it might have a female main character, okay. which would be brand new for me. Yeah. I will get attacked a lot on that one. Because um, I get attacked a lot because people say, you know, you don't have female characters. The Facebook movie got attacked. Women are just objects. Well, if you met these kids to, the, to Eduardo and Mark, they didn't have a lot of girlfriends. Uh, so the reality was that was how women were seen in that story. Um, and you know, I, I think the new one, it may have a female main character, but we'll see. Okay, yeah, yeah. Ben, thank you so much. Thank My you guys, I appreciate it. Well, this thank was very you. fun, that thank was you very much. Absolutely excellent, really good. Everyone can hold tight for a second while I take Ben out to the signing tent next door um, where he'll be signing copies of the book. I think you can get a drink in the signing tent and there is also from nine o'clock till one, the bar is open at the Unbound in the Highland Park Spiegel Tent. I'm reading that because I'm not quite sure what that means, Spiegel Tent, yes. So that's on till one this evening. Thank you again. Thanks to Grazia for sponsoring it and uh, let's take you next door. Right, Thanks thank very you. much indeed. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.